2007, October 2nd. Lecture 10, Telling Time. So yesterday we talked about eclipses. Okay, We talked about the different ways in which the lunar eclipses and solar eclipses occur. And our little finger exercise question here just before talked about the conditions you need for an eclipse to occur. We have to have a two-fold, two, two particular conditions. You have to be either in new moon or full moon. And the line of nodes has to be lined up with the, with the moon. That turns out to be a fairly complicated series of arrangements. It only happens every now and then. This means that if you don't have a relatively sophisticated way of keeping time, both a clock and a calendar, mostly a calendar, there's no way you're going to predict when a, an eclipse is going to occur. And so an eclipse is going to catch up with you. It's going to surprise you. Oh my God, something's, a dragon's eating the moon or something like that. And so not quite naturally, relatively unsophisticated societies that do not have that level of mathematics could not predict eclipses. And so they were really sources of wonder and fear to them. They were unpredictable. But as certain civilizations became more stable, as they actually had long-term record keeping, often an invention of writing, but that's not necessarily a requirement perhaps, and they had a way to analyze that data. So they developed some form of mathematics that recognized the regular patterns in the heavens. You could actually predict when eclipses of the sun and moon occurred. It took some time. You had to have a long base of time, maybe at least 100 or 200 years of civilization, stable enough and able to transmit that information to you, meaning through a written language or an exceedingly rich oral tradition, in order to get to that level of sophistication. An example. When Columbus landed in what they thought was later the New World, but Columbus was still convinced to his death was actually the um, eastern coast of Asia, they were on, the, on an island of what's now, I guess, now San Salvador. And the people who lived there, native people, called themselves the Taino. Now, the Spanish had a sort of a bad habit uh, when they came to the, to the, to the New World. They, they didn't like to work for a living. They just wanted the gold to fall in their hands. And they also wanted the local population to feed them. And since they had steel and advanced weapons, they could generally have their way. But every now and then, the locals would get fed up with these lazy bastards who weren't feeding themselves and stop feeding them. And this happened during Columbus's first voyage. Taino basically said, hey, look, we're in the Caribbean. There's food everywhere. Go fish for yourself. Go pick the trees yourself. So Columbus decided to threaten them. He threatened them by pulling out his table, and he realized he remembered that there was an eclipse of the sun coming up, and it was going to be visible from what he thought was the longitudes where he was, certainly at that latitude. So he predicted to them, he said, hey, look, you either feed us, or I'm going to make the sun go away. Eclipse, hap eclipse happened, the Taino freaked, and they, the Spaniards got fed for the rest of, of that particular um, expedition. However, had Columbus not landed up in the Caribbean islands and in fact landed, which is entirely possible, on the Yucatan Peninsula and come in contact not with the Taino but the Maya, who still were alive. They were in decline, but they were still around and they were still powerful. If he tried that trick, they'd go, yeah, and there's going to be a lunar eclipse in two weeks. What else? Tell me something new. And probably wiped them, wiped them out. The difference being is the Taino were preliterate. They did not have a really stable civilization and an oral culture. They did not have astronomy. The Maya were centuries old. They had a very well astronomically based society and they were able to predict eclipses. And the distinction here has to do with, this is a lead-in, a long lead-in to today's lecture. 
There are practical aspects to astronomy that have to do with telling time, both telling time of hours and minutes and telling time over the years, the seasons, the years, and on longer timescales. And the ability to recognize these and the development of the techniques, if you will, a body of technique is known as technology, to exploit that information is a signpost of a civilization becoming advanced. So today we're going to talk about a practical application of astronomy that goes back to the earliest written records, the telling of time. So we're going to first of all introduce the idea and remind you that our timekeeping conventions are tied to astronomy and how they, or how they work. We're going to look at the divisions of the year, the divisions of the year into the so-called quarter and cross-quarter days, which you've already seen, at least half of this, and then a finer subdivision of the year into months and weeks. Once you've subdivided up the year, the next layer of abstraction is to begin to subdivide the day. We start out by dividing the day up into hours, minutes, and seconds, and we're going to introduce the distinction between solar and sidereal time. How you tie together time told by the sun versus time told by the stars. And at the end, if, we, if I haven't talked myself out of time, I'll say just a little bit at the end about modern day versions of this, civil timekeeping and the use of time zones, which brings back the idea of being able to establish longitude upon the Earth and dividing the Earth up into time zones, a relatively late addition of something we call standard time. It's actually breaking in detail the astronomical linkage between the time that's shown on the clock and the time that actually appears in the sky, the time we've been using for millennia. So. When we deal with astronomy, there's many different aspects we're going to take in. A lot of what we'll talk about sort of for most of the class will be what I will call the theoretical aspects of astronomy. How does it work? What is the physics behind the motions in the heavens? But there's another side of this, which is the practical aspect of those motions. The cycle of rising and setting, the cycle of the seasons, is relentless and continually repeatable. And it doesn't take very long before anybody who's paying attention begins to recognize this repetition of cycles. And with a little bit of sophistication in numbers, you can actually predict when certain things will begin to occur. All of our modern-day timekeeping conventions are astronomically based. This is not only the time we keep on clocks, but also our calendars. Now, I'll say more about calendars in detail tomorrow, because it's a slightly different story, which requires an even higher level of abstraction. Today, we're just going to talk about our timekeeping conventions. The basic units of time that we use are astronomically based. The year. The year is, based, is the time it takes for the Earth to complete one orbit around the sun, or if you take a geocentric which is view, which is a sort of common sense view if you're standing at a single location on the Earth, it's the amount of time it takes for the sun to go once around the celestial sphere along its path of the ecliptic. For example, you might measure the year from vernal equinox until the next vernal equinox, when the sun has repeated and completed one complete cycle around the ecliptic. The month that we use in our calendars is derived from the lunar cycle of phases. In fact, the word month is a corruption of month. Moon and month and measure all have the same root in Sanskrit. It means to measure, the word may. Furthermore, the day is a reflection of the rotation of the Earth around its axis. How long does it take the sun to rise in the east, set in the west, and then repeat that cycle? So the natural astronomical cycles we've seen so far, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, the orbit of the Moon around the Earth through the cycle of phases, and the rotation of the Earth around its axis, all set three fundamental different timescales, daily, monthly, and yearly. 
And we can use these as ways to tell time on short, medium, and long scales. So all of our timekeeping conventions are astronomically based. And a lot of the language behind them bears the traces of thousands of years of astronomy. Now we've already seen this division of the celestial sphere before. This is one that you should be able to draw for yourself at any given time. Celestial sphere surrounding the Earth at the center. The celestial equator is the projection of the Earth's equator. And of course the north and south celestial poles are just the intersection points of the Earth's north and south rotation axes. The sun follows this tilted path along the ecliptic here in the celestial sphere. It's tilted by an angle of around 23 and a half degrees, the obliquity of the ecliptic. And it appears, as viewed on the Earth, to follow an approximately westward path. Objects in the, objects in the, objects in the sky appear to rise in the east and settle in the west daily. But the sun appears to move a little bit eastward every single day. So we start out, for example, in spring at the vernal equinox when the sun is exactly on the celestial equator. We proceed eastward through the sky, reaching maximum northern declination at the summer solstice. You then descend southerly, but still moving easterly, until you cross the celestial equator heading south at the autumnal equinox. Another quarter of the year later, you bottom out at the maximum southern declination at the winter solstice, and then you rise to the north again and cross the celestial equator heading north at the vernal equinox and complete the cycle of the year. As we saw last week, when the sun is at each of these positions, greater or lesser degrees of direct solar illumination at middle latitudes is what gives rise to the seasons. So for example, from Columbus, vernal is spring, summer solstice is summertime, autumnal equinox is autumn or fall, and winter solstice is naturally middle of winter. Now, you can call these approximately the quarter days because they seem to divide the year into not exactly equal quarters. It turns out that the time of each of the seasons is not exactly the same. That's a detail I haven't introduced yet, but it certainly was noticed that it took a little bit longer to go from summer to autumn than it did to go from autumn to winter. It was different by about four or five days on both sides. But it certainly was, you could very easily tell with a little, bit of, a little bit of forethought, you could set up sticks and set up stones in the ground, and you could tell, well, on the day of the vernal equinox or the autumnal equinox, the sun is on the celestial equator. Celestial equator is exactly on my east-west compass points, so the sun will rise from any given location exactly in the east and set exactly in the west. So if you set up one stone in the middle and then set up a stone due east and due west of it, and simply watch for the day that the sun rose exactly over that eastern stone and set over the western stone, you could mark the day of the equinox. Similarly, when you're at the summer solstice, the sun rises at its maximum position. When, the, when as the sun goes north of the celestial equator, it will rise at progressively further north along the horizon until finally, depending upon your latitude, it will rise about 23 and a half degrees from east up to essentially northeast and then set in the northwest. So you set up a second set of stones or sticks that points to that maximum northern rising point or maximum northern setting point along your horizon. And when the sun rises from those points, you know it's the summer solstice. Do the analogous thing for the southeastern and southwestern points when the sun is at the winter solstice, and you have completed a solstitial and equinoctial calendar. 
you've built an observatory to observe the exact day of equinox and solstice by observing the rising and setting of the sun at its, at its either directly on your east-west points at equinoxes, at its maximum northern position at summer solstice, and maximum southern position at winter solstice. And this, in fact, is what was done. This was done by uh, the people who built Stonehenge in England. It was done by the um, Native American peoples who live near Cahokia in Illinois who did this not with stones but with large wooden posts set in the ground, the so-called Woodhenge. It was done by um, the Adena and Hopewell people who lived in Ohio. There, in fact, are a number of earthworks. There's an earthworks out towards Newark. There's another one out towards uh, Fort Ancient down the Little Miami River. Certain structures in the, of mounds in those earthworks and openings in the walls exactly align with the equinoxes and solstices. It's a very straightforward thing to do if you're in one place for long enough and you have a settled culture. The solstices and equinoxes were such notable astronomical days that holidays have been associated with them. In fact, there are a number of holidays associated originally with pre-Christian societies that have been adopted by Christianity as they begin to take over and convert people from the old pagan religions into Christianity. For example, the winter solstice occurs at about the time of Christmas time, Yuletide, or the old Roman festival of Saturnalia. Yuletide was the celebration of when the sun, which was getting lower and lower in the sky and the earth was getting colder and colder, began its travels to the north, that you knew you were gone with the, with, the, with the cooling of the days and that the warming and lengthening of the days would begin. People marked that, so that, that particular um, holiday. And, of course, Christmas is pretty close in proximity. It occurs on December 25th in the current Gregorian calendar. The winter solstice is around the 20th or 21st of December. The vernal equinox is the time of Easter, Passover, or the old Saxon festival of Eastra. In fact, our name for the Feast of the Resurrection of Christ, a.k.a. Easter, in the Christian tradition, is in fact a corruption of the Saxon word Estra, which was actually a, um, a fertility festival held by pre-Christian Celtic peoples. The summer solstice, not as familiar anymore as Midsummer or St. John's Eve. For those of you Shakespeare fans, a Midsummer Night's Dream occurred on the day of the summer solstice. And autumnal equinox, again, not as familiar anymore, was Maybon, which was actually a Welsh harvest festival, and Michaelmas. For those of you who may know something about Britain and the school system there, the Michaelmas quarter begins around the autumnal equinox. Just like school in the United States at colleges on the quarter system, hmm, quarters of the year begin about on the equinoxes and end just before the solstices. Even our quarter system with its approximate tying to cycles of harvest and planting, because we were originally an agrarian society a century or so ago, are still tied to the seasons, which themselves are tied to the equinoxes and solstices. We just have forgotten the astronomical roots. Here are a couple of places which were actually purpose-built for the observation of solstices. This is a marvelous place in County Me, Ireland. It's Newgrange out near Nowth. The date on this, this is an immense barrow tomb, a mound tomb. It dates from 3200 B.C. But on the day of the winter solstice, this little door opening here, the sun shines exactly down it, illuminating the pathway into the tomb. No other day of the year does sunlight fall into that thing sufficient to actually see what's going on. You'd have to bring torches in there. So the entire site was set out very carefully aligned with the rising of the sun on the day of the winter solstice. And, of course, the most famous of these is Stonehenge, which is built on the Salisbury Plain. 
It was built in multiple stages, we think now between about 2950 and 1600 BC. Nowadays, the Druids claim it, but the Druids were late comers. We don't know who actually built this site. But we do know from the alignments of the various stones, for example, the so-called heel stone here viewed from the center of the structure where the sun rising on the day of the summer solstice rises exactly over that stone. Here's a photograph from the summer solstice of 2005. This is England, after all. It rains most of the time in the summertime, so you have to get a good year for this. I found this picture on the web here. It's beautiful. What you see is a crowd of people. All the new ages turn out in force for this particular uh, event here. But in addition to the sun, summer solstice rise, there are numerous stones around here that mark the maximum northern and southern rising points of the moon, the equinoxes, and the summer solstice, and perhaps even more. It's somewhat speculative because, of course, these people left no written records behind, and even the oral traditions of them were dead long before the Druids and the Romans showed up on the scene. But here is 5,000 years old, a very advanced calculator, basically, built in stone to watch the seasons go through and mark the exact time of the equinoxes and solstices to celebrate the various festivals associated with those days. They set this up. They went to a lot of trouble because it mattered to them. Keeping time matters. Now, there's another set of markings in the sky which are less familiar to us today. These occur at the midpoints between the solstices and equinoxes, and they are called the cross-quarter days, sometimes called the mid-quarter days in other traditions. And I've simply labeled them as the first cross-quarter day, which occurs between winter and vernal equinox, winter solstice and vernal equinox, the second cross-quarter day between spring and summer, the third between summer solstice and autumnal equinox, and the fourth between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice. Now we look at these things and you say, well, so what? But then you remember that a lot of English-speaking culture has its roots in Celtic culture, which were the original prim uh, people who lived in England and Ireland, and also sections of Germany where even my ancestors come from, so I'm probably Celtic in all directions. These are associated with well-known festivals. For example, the first cross-quarter day occurs roughly between February 2nd and February 6th. That's Candlemas Groundhog Day, the uh, Celtic festival of Imbolc, or first milk, which was when the, the lambs first started producing, the sheep ewes started first producing milk just after the birth of the lambs, and Setsubun, the Japanese festival that celebrates the beginning of spring. Notice their beginning of spring is not the equinox, but the mid-quarter, cross-quarter day before the equinox. The second cross-quarter day, the one that occurs between spring equinox and summer solstice, is May, between May 4th and 7th. The festivals associated with that are May Day, usually a, a fertility festival in Celtic times, or the Celtic festival of Beltane. Okay. In August, the third cross-quarter day between the summer solstice and the autumnal equinox is Lamas or Lugnasa, if you're Celtic. The dance is the Games of Lug. It was basically dedicated to one of the gods of the Celtic pantheon. Nowadays, it's mostly known for Lamas, which is loaf mass. It was the old festival of the first bread made from the first grain harvested at the end of the year, which would occur in about the middle of August. And finally, between November 5th and November 8th is the fourth cross-quarter day as the sun descends from the autumnal equinox towards the winter solstice, and that turns out to be the Celtic festival of Salmon, which is actually now Halloween in the United States, which is, you know, get as much candy from your neighbor's day, or in the Christian tradition, it is the Feast of All Saints. They're sort of roughly interchangeable. 
Those of you who may remember or may know your literature, the story of Dr. Faustus, of Alpergus Nacht, the witch's night at Salmon. Here are familiar holidays in our traditions, and we don't know where they come from or why they come at these random times of the year, because they actually mark the arrival of the cross-quarter days. So here is, buried in our culture, a remembrance of the astronomical roots of timekeeping before there were detailed calendars. You kept time by the sun by watching the equinoxes and solstices and then further subdivided into the cross-quarter days. In fact, to some of these old calendars, the cross-quarter days were actually more important than the solstices and equinoxes. Here's an example here of a calendar that survives to us from a manuscript from the 9th century AD. It's from the time of, of Charlemagne. So it's a Carolingian illustration of the course of the sun through the months. It's kind of hard to hear, read, and it's in Latin. But basically, here are the times of the solstices and the equinoxes. But notice that the major divisions are at the cross-quarter days. In fact, the Celtic calendar was more importantly tied to the cross-quarter days than it was to the solstices and equinoxes. And to do this, they had to have a relatively sophisticated means of astronomy to note the appearance of these days. Furthermore, they more sensibly began the seasons on the cross-quarter days. Let's face it, the first day of winter is really not the winter solstice. The first real day of winter is usually around the 1st of November when the first snows arrive at middle latitudes. And the first day of spring is about the time that, you know, really when the first last freezes are sort of at the end of February. They bracket the, summer, the winter solstice. Similarly, the first day of summer, the first really hot days up here at middle latitudes are around the first week of May, not the middle of June. So it's not surprising, for example, in the Japanese tradition. The Japanese calendar marks the beginning of the seasons at the cross-quarter days, not at the solstices and equinoxes. So too, in Celtic tradition, it simply got overtaken by an older Roman tradition that came up through the Catholic Church and that established the calendar that was used in the Middle Ages. So buried in our language, buried in some of the oddities of our culture, is a remembrance, a very vague remembrance, of some astronomical observations that went on over many centuries to establish the marking of the times of the year by observing the course of the sun across the sky as it goes through the various stations of the ecliptic, the equinoxes and solstices, and then the cross-quarter days in between. Any questions about that before we go on? That makes a nice stopping point. I got interrupted today, so I don't have a mid-course mid question today, unfortunately. Couldn't come up with one just before I looked up the clock and went, ah, I pack up and go. Any questions about cross-quarter days, solstices, associated timekeeping? Okay. Well, having done a very coarse division of the year, there are some practical reasons for making finer divisions of the year. And some of these fine subdivisions are now going to be tied to other astronomical observations. We divide the year into a cycle of 12 months. Each of these months is approximately one lunar phase cycle. If you look at the course of a year, 365 and a quarter days, there is not an exact 12 lunar phase cycles. They are, in fact, 12.4 lunar phase cycles that go through the course of a year. So it's not exact. You have to do a little something to get the phase cycles in the year all lined up. So again, as I said before, our word month is derived from the same word for moon. In fact, in, in sort of crippled English, it probably was referring to a month, a moon time. 
So you would divide the year by watching the cycles of the moon. And a lot of people did this. Okay, You hear the old expression, for example, the Plains Indians divided up into the various types of moons. And they would talk almost in sort of sounds like sort of, you know, bad old Hollywood Western, you know, many moons ago. Cut that nonsense. What they really were corrupting was the fact that the Lakota people, for example, had a name for each of their months based on what activities would occur when that moon cycle was occurring. Oh, that's the moon cycle where we hunt buffalo. That's the moon cycle where we hunker down for the coldest part of winter and so forth. So you can keep time by the moon if you're perhaps a nomadic people who don't have a stable place to live, who don't do build solar observatories. So it's interesting that the heavily settled Native Americans, like around Cahokia or Adena or Hopewell, built solar observatories and seemed to keep solar time. Whereas the nomadic groups of the West, the nomadic peoples of the Western Plains, kept lunar time because they didn't have to have a stable wood hinge or something set up. They just watched the phases of the moon night after night. Now the division of months is a little bit inconvenient, perhaps. We might want a smaller unit. And so over time, various people have begun to divide the uh, lunar month into various weeks or subdivisions of days that then repeat it on a cycle. Nowadays, we divide each week up by seven days, but that's totally arbitrary. You could have used eight days or nine days or ten days. It's hard to say what you would want to use, but nowadays we use seven. And the reason for seven has to do with a little bit of numerology and a little bit of astronomy. Seven is a lucky number. Why? because there are seven moving bodies or planets in the sky. The Sun and Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. That's the seven stars. Seven seems to be a magical number for these unusual objects. Every other astronomical object stays put. Only the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn move through the sky day to day on their own. And so this seven-fold division of seven days per week remains. Furthermore, those astronomical roots are buried in the language. The names for the days of the week. Okay, our days for the names of the week are Sunday, Monday, Sunday, Moon's Day, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Oops, broke the pattern because English is based on Anglo-Saxon. And they borrowed the names of various gods and goddesses from the Anglo-Saxon tradition. Tew, Woden, Thor, you know, the guy with the hammer, Freya, and Saturn. Oh, there's a Roman god slipping in. So there's three of these are in astronomical terms. But if you really want to see the astronomical roots of the week, go into the Roman or the Latinate languages derived from Latin. Solis, Lunae, Martis, Mercuri, Jovis, Veneris, Saturni. Sun, Moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn. And it remains, if you go down into Spanish-speaking areas, Domingo, not the Sun, but the Lord. That's actually the, the, the Lord's Day. Lunes, the Moon, Martes, Mars, Mircoles, Mercury, Jueves, Jovis, Jove, Jupiter, Viernes, Veneris, Venus, and Sabato is, in fact, a corruption of Saturni. So therein, buried in the language, particularly in the Latin, is the remembrance that the days of the week were named for the seven planets, the seven moving stars. Well, having divided up the week, having divided up the year into months, the months into weeks, it now fell to sort of asking the question of, can we use an even finer grain division of time? Can we divide up the day? For most people, it pretty much sufficed there to be sunrise, midday, 
sunset. And that's usually sufficient. And then there's night, midnight. Yeah, we're kind of halfway through the night. And then you repeat the cycle over and over again. So at the very least, you can keep time by the sun. Watch when the sun rises. Watch when it gets to the north-south meridian line in the sky at midday. And watch when it sets in the west. But the sun moves along the ecliptic. And the ecliptic is tilted by 23 and a half degrees. So the sun rises and sets at different times every day. So you end up with an uneven division of day and night. So we can use this, but there's going to be some complicating factors because the sun moves about the sky north to south along the ecliptic. So now we want to try to take it nowadays, in the modern age, we divide the day into 24 hours. This wasn't always the case. For example, in a lot of traditions, the day actually begins at sunrise, at dawn, not at midnight like we do in the current civil timekeeping system. Furthermore, and this was common all the way up until the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, day and night were each 12 hours long, independent of the fact that in wintertime, for example, night is actually longer than the day at northern middle latitudes. They would still divide it into 12, 12 hours, 12 divisions between, for example, in the day, you would start your clock at sunrise and it would be 12 hours at sunset whether it was summer, where the days are very long, or winter, where the days are very short. The length of the hour was different for different days and different nights at different times. So an hour of daylight in the summertime was longer than an hour of nighttime, and vice versa at the winter solstice. Now the reason for this, for this division of equal hours for day and night, is it worked for the easiest way to measure the, the position of the sun. If I want to follow the sun across the sky, I slam a stick into the ground, I measure out north-south, and I wait until the shadow of that stick crosses my north-south line. The minute that stick shadow crosses the north-south line, the sun is at mid-heaven and it's noon. I could then mark it out where it is at sunrise and sunset and the various divisions, easily divide that up into six intervals between, I just built a sundial. So because we people use sundials for so long as the primary way of telling time by the sun, Rather than have odd divisions for different times of the year, the most primitive sundial divided the sky into 12 equal hours. And so you would get some strange references. For example, in Roman poetry, there are references to a soldier wishing he could walk, walk he would much rather walk a winter's out, walk, march for a winter's hour and spend time with his girlfriend for a summer's hour. It's because summer hours were long and winter hours were short. Here's a sundial showing this 12-fold division up. It's a very simple sundial. We see these things going back. There's archaeological sundials going back two, 3,000 years now. This is a very common form of telling, telling the time. It has some disadvantages. It doesn't work when it's cloudy, but it's actually fairly accurate if you do a 12-hour division of day and night. There's a sundial on campus which is much more sophisticated, which actually would have a pointer in here. And then there's a very complicated arrangement of lines on this sundial, which takes into account the fact that a modern clock has 12 equal hours of day and night. And so you need to change where that shadow is based on whether the sun is low in the sky at the winter or high in the sky at the summer. This is over near Phoenix uh, Plaza. This is the sundial over in Phoenix Plaza out near the main library. There's supposed to be a little pointer right here on this point here, which casts a shadow. This sundial has two problems. One is it's surrounded by trees, which during the summertime means it doesn't work so hot. And second is the pointer's gone. 
And I, I called around, every, every time I get interested in this, I call around on campus and say, who's taking care of that and what happened to the pointer? Nobody knows what happened to the pointer, but every time they replace it, it disappears and beer has been implicated. So we don't know. We still have an unworking sundial, but clocks work better. So what about equal hours? Where did equal hours come from? When did we begin dividing the day into equal hours of 12 hours, when an hour of day was the same as hour of night, and 24 hours through the course of an entire day? Well, that actually comes and had to wait until the invention of mechanical clocks. Now, the Greeks had water clocks, but they only measured time for short intervals. Some clocks actually measured time for longer intervals, and they used an equal measure of hours, but because everyone else used a sun-based hour, they had to do conversions, and it wasn't terribly convenient. But by the 1300s, advances in mechanical techniques had actually reached the point where people could build clocks. They were powered by falling weights, and they wanted to make certain that the clocks read true the next morning. You didn't want a very sophisticated mechanism that had to know the time of year to speed up at night and slow down during the day as the seasons went back and forth. You said, ah, it's a whole lot easier to just build a clock where the hand takes 24 hours to go once around. The first clocks, in fact, had a single hand, which went around the dial once every year. Dial, by the way, has the Latin root dia. Dia is also the root of the word dies, which means day. So it's a very simple clock design. If you try to make a fancy astronomical clock, you're doomed. But if you make a simple clock, it's fairly easy. Well, relatively easy. People still didn't know how to make little teeny tiny clocks for a long time. The gears were gigantic. And they were expensive, and they took a lot of skill. So you pretty much got one clock per town, unless you were a really rich, clock, rich town, and you had separate clocks. It's a sign of wealth, for example, when people wanted to show off their wealth. They would build big houses, and then they would have their own personal clock in them to show, hey, Bling. That was medieval bling was having a clock in your house. And the fancier the better. So they erected them in clock towers so everyone could use them. So you could see them from all over town and everyone would set their time by the clock. This led to, very quickly, a standardization of timekeeping. And clocks were wonderful. They work at night and they work in the rain. You don't have to have the sun out. Now when the sun did come out, they would use sundials to set the zero point of time and make certain that noon was still reading noon. As they refined the mechanical design, that ready adjustment was needed less and less. Personal time key pieces came later. In fact, up to this time, if you wanted a personal time piece, it was usually a portable sundial of some sort, until mechanical skill in working with metal reached the level of sophistication that they could actually build small mechanical clocks. But that was not really until the 15th and 16th centuries. Here's a gorgeous clock from the 15th century. It's in the Palazzo San Marco in Venice. Uh, okay, I took these pictures on vacation just before class started. This is a really cool clock. Um, it's an astronomical clock. Now, it has one hand, which reads out the hours. But it's semi-digital, in that sitting over here on either side of the statue of Mary the Virgin is the hour in Roman numerals, and the time to the nearest 15 minutes will come clicking up here. So this thing will show 0, 15, 30, and 45. And then this thing will click on time. This shows you the time. Obviously, I took these at two different times here. In addition to this, here is the Earth. The hour hand is the sun in this representation. And there is a second dial which keeps turning, which lays out the constellations of the zodiac that turn around with this clock so that the sun is in the proper zodiacal constellation for the time of the year. Finally, just to add, this is, this is the doges, of, they were really into some serious bling. 
That's the moon, and it turns around to show the proper moon phase. You had to have some serious bucks to be able to build something like this. And these things are the really fancy clock. It still works. It's powered by falling weights. It's really, really cool. So this is what you did. You build a one-handed clock. It only shows the hours. Yeah, we'll give you the quarter hours, too, digitally. But that came out a century later. And then up on top here, which is not in this picture, there's a very fancy little bell thing that comes out where a couple of mores come out, uh, mechanical mores come out and whack a bell. That was sort of a, a little bit for the Venice, remember, was actually in competition with the um, Islamic lands. And so the fact that, that there were Moors ringing the bell meant the Venice was on top. So that's a medieval clock. But what about finer subdivisions of the hour? Other than quarter hours, that's why we often talked about quarter to half past remains in our language, is a remembrance that we used to only divide up the hours by the quarter of the hour. When did these finer subdivisions occur? Well, they didn't really keep, until the 1500s, the very finest division was a single-handed clock keeping the quarter hour, maybe with a little counter like that fancy clock in Venice, or those other mechanisms people used. But further subdivisions became warranted as better and better mechanical clock designs came into play. When they decided to do the division, they borrowed from angular notation developed by Ptolemy and divided the hour into 60 minutes, just like we divide the degree into 60 minutes of arc. And then finally, they divided the minute into 60 seconds of time, just like the minute of arc is divided into seconds, 60 seconds of arc. The second hand didn't become common until the 1670s due to some work by Galileo Galilei and the invention of the 39-inch pendulum clock. The swing of a 39-inch long pendulum arm is one second. That's why 39 inches is a fancy number. So the invention of a more familiar hour hand, minute hand, and second hand is a relatively recent phenomenon. It has no astronomical basis at all. It is simply a break-off of how you can get finer and finer divisions of time as people needed to know time to better and better accuracy. Now, there's two different ways of telling time that we've alluded to. We measure the day by measuring the sun. There's two ways of measuring what we call solar time. The first of these is local solar noon. I stand out, slam a stick into the ground, stand exactly north-south of that stick, and watch when the sun is exactly at its highest point in the sky on that day. And I say, noon. And then I wait 24 hours later until that happens again. I say, noon again, one day's passed. Mean solar time is the time between successive noons. It turns out the Earth is not moving at the same rate around the sun. We move a little faster in January when we're perihelion, a little slower at aphelion later in the year. As a consequence, if we kept time by just when the sun was exactly on our meridian, we would lose time by five or 10 minutes either side through the course of the year. So you define something called the mean solar day, which is the time between successive appearances of noon in this sort of mean sun. Now, noon depends upon your longitude. Here in Columbus, if I see the, the sun on my meridian, a person who's 15 degrees to the east of me would have seen the sun on his meridian, therefore noon an hour earlier, and a person to the west of me out in Indiana and Illinois will see the sun reach the meridian an hour later after me because the earth rotates from west towards the east. So this gives us a natural 15 degree division of the earth into 15 degree one hour time zones. So here's a mean solar day. Noon is straight overhead. I exaggerate the scale, 24 hours later, I'm back to noon again. 
So I'm looking at the sun. I turn around. Back to the sun again. That's noon to noon. But sidereal time is time measured with respect to the stars. Each day the sun moves about a degree on its orbit while it turns on its axis. This means that relative to the stars, I have to turn an extra four minutes to bring the sun back into alignment with my noon line. So the stars appear to rise four minutes earlier each night. The different constellations roll through the sky at different times of the year reflecting the motion of the Earth around the sun. So here's my picture of sidereal time again. There I go aligning with the stars as I turn around once. And now to align with the sun, I have to turn for an extra four minutes to bring myself back into alignment. So the sidereal day is 23.56 minutes, four seconds, compared to 24 hours of a complete day. So timekeeping is very, very old. It goes back to the oldest applications of astronomy. And buried in our timekeeping conventions here on the Earth is a memory of that astronomical past. We find it in the, in the divisions of the year, in the use of the month, and in the divisions of the day. We can always tell time by the sun, even if we didn't have clocks. Modern day, we've standardized it because of long-distance transportation. Don't have time to talk about that today, but I left a little stuff on your website if you want to see how it's brought into the modern, non-astronomical present. Tomorrow, we'll talk about organizing time on long scales by organizing calendars.